This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. So um, as I'm taking everything in and on this departure, we are climbing through, I believe we made it to about 2,800 MSL and the avionics went black and fuses started to pop on my right leg. I could feel them kind of popping and there were several of them that popped. At this point, I'm thinking, you know, it's a Sunday. There's no mechanic on duty to take a look at this electrical problem. Little did I know that this electrical problem was the least of our concern. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Brian Lensmeyer. Brian is an IFR-rated private pilot. He's gonna share with us a story today about a flight in a Cirrus SR-22 that he had recently purchased that ended in a caps pool. Brian started flying in 2004. He learned to fly in a Cessna 150 and then bought a Cessna 177 Cardinal before buying the Cirrus SR-22 just days before the event he's going to share with us today. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Brian, thank you for sharing this really interesting story. You were on a flight from Addison, Texas to Waco, Texas. You had recently purchased this uh, SR-22, and then you had an occasion with an engine problem and ended in a caps pool. You bought the airplane just a couple days prior to this, so you were still in the process of checking out with your CSIP instructor, right? Your Cirrus standardized instructor pilot. So you were still in the early stages of getting used to this airplane and getting your checkout. Is that right? Absolutely. That is correct. We, uh, Cirrus actually has a really good protocol and uh, run you through several modules and a lot of ground instruction on when they do a Cirrus transition training. They, you know, this, it, it's amazing that Cirrus does this, but it's all free to me. I mean, I'm sure it's costing them some money, but it's free for me as soon as I bought this Cirrus. Yeah, it's fantastic program, by the way, that Cirrus does this, not just with new airplanes, but for you, people that are buying used airplanes. And it's had a tremendous impact on safety because that's a big step. As you're talking about going from your 177 up to the Cirrus, you've now got a lot more power. You've got a lot more advanced avionics. So that's a pretty big step up in your piloting capability. And you had, what, about 600 total hours at this time? That's correct, about 600 total hours and and maybe a total of 20 hours in actual IMC. So really not a whole lot of IFR experience either. Okay. So... Here you are with your CSIP instructor just getting checked out and pretty exciting time for you to purchase a, a Cirrus, fantastic traveling airplane, and pick it up from there, please. Sure. So 
that first day had some really iffy weather, so we decided to stay on the ground for most of the day and go over some of these um, online modules to discuss lots of the features and lots of the capabilities and, and go over the operating handbook. And, and interestingly, we, we, that very first day, uh, we had the block or instruction on the caps pull, when to pull, how to pull, elevation to pull at, you know, minimum elevation for a caps pull. So all of that was fresh in my mind. And for him, the CSIP, you know, it was just another routine instruction. It was just, you know, going through the checklist to make sure we've covered everything. But to me, again, it, it kind of stuck in my mind. And it's interesting that it really stuck because the next day is when it was really useful. So again, that first day we were able to get about a half an hour, just um, some pattern work, just to get used to it, get a slight feel for it. That next day, we decided we'd file IFR down to Waco. It was marginal VFR weather, so it wasn't terrible. Um, we'd be in and out of some wispy clouds, but nothing terrible. Uh, we decided we'd go down there for lunch just to kind of get used to the upgraded avionics. Normal run-up and no issues at run-up. I did, in fact, looking back on it, I had a funny burning smell during the run-up. But again, this was a new aircraft to me, so I wasn't really questioning it at that point. I just thought, okay, this is just a new smell. Got to get used to a new smell. Mm. Now, also, I'm just following along with you in foreflight here. That, uh, that departure for you, you're stepping up to a brand new airplane, new avionics package. That's some pretty busy airspace you're operating in there. It was very busy, the airspace. And it, it's interesting because I actually saved my, uh, my little cheat sheet for my clearance that day. I've got it in a, a file at home because it was, it was, it was very busy airspace, something I'm not used to, avionics I'm not used to, trying to program in a departure into these Garmin's that I've never done before. So it was, it was a very busy time for my, for my brain, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, underneath the uh, Dallas class Bravo there, and uh, Addison has bumped right up against uh, DFW pretty close. So that's um, there's frequently TFRs in there for different sporting events. So you know, quite quite a busy uh, airspace you were operating out of. Absolutely, absolutely. So there was there was a lot of mental capacity being used at that departure. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, as I'm taking everything in and on this departure, we are climbing through, I believe we made it to about 2,800 MSL and the avionics went black. Um, I can't remember if the Garmin's went black as well, but I know the the Avidyne MFD went, went black and fuses started to pop on my right leg. I could feel them kind of popping and there were several of them that, that popped. At that point, we still had full engine power. Uh, we looked at the engine gauges. We have the engine gauges that are the non-digital analog gauges on the right-hand side, luckily, and everything looked fine on the engine. So we decided we'd just clear ourselves back to Addison and land in Addison and figure out what happened. At this point, I'm thinking, you know, it's a Sunday. Um, there's no mechanic on duty to take a look at this electrical problem. Little did I know that this electrical problem was the least of our concern. So when we decided to make that turn, we actually, Dallas Love Field was right there. I, I, could, I vividly remember Dallas Love underneath us, or up a ways, maybe five miles away, um, easily within glidable distance at that point. But we still had full engine power, 
So we decided to make that 180 back to Addison instead of declaring an emergency and going into Dallas Love. So once we made, as soon as we made that 180, the engine quit. And in the meantime, I'm seeing some, just some very fine dust and white debris landing in the lap of my CSIP sitting next to me. And I'm mm. seeing what I think is either wispy clouds or smoke coming over the wing root on the right side. So as those Gen 1 Ciruses have the cabin air intake at the wing root, <clears throat> whatever was coming off of that engine or that cowling was coming right into that, to the cabin vent and onto the CSIP's lap. So, And did you recognize that at the time when you saw that dust that you, where that intake was and that that must have been coming or is this all hindsight? It, a lot of this is hindsight. You're correct. Yeah. At yeah. this point, okay. I'm seeing a flash of white in his lap and, I think I'm seeing smoke or am I seeing a wispy cloud? It's, it's, it's a lot in your head at that point. So looking back now, I know for sure that was smoke, but yeah. at the time it's, it's questionable because we still have an engine that works. So everything's kind of confusing at this point. Yeah. So at this point, everything went dark. So the Cirrus is mostly a glass cockpit, but you do have some standby. We used to refer to them as peanut gauges, right? Maybe. Analog gauges. Exactly. Yeah. And this luckily on this gen one, There's just the MFD is glass. There's your PFD is still um, not glass. It's the analog gauges. So it was okay. a little bit easier to decipher at that point. Okay, good. So you're, you've lost that, but you're transitioning to your analog stuff. You pass over Dallas Love Field because, well, your engine's still running. Um, you, know, you know you need to get back and you're working that, but it do, it's not critical. But then in the, in the middle of that turn, you mentioned now you lose your engine. Exactly. And that's when, uh, that's when it got really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're in that turn, about what altitude and uh, how far away from the field were you? So I think we were roughly 2,800 uh, MSL at that point um, with no engine and no avionics. And it's interesting, you know, now that I'm looking back, I, I do think we lost the Garmin GPSs as well but the radio still worked. So we could still communicate with initially departure and then back to Addison. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. You mentioned 2,800 MSL. So you're roughly 2,000, 2,200 AGL. At Correct. I think, yeah. I think the field elevation there at Addison is, is around 500 feet. You're right. Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Looking at six, 645. So, okay. okay so now, Now what's your plan? What, do you, what are you doing here? You've got that CAPS. You just the day before talked about it. Where'd you go from here? Well, so there I was with no engine and, and no avionics facing uh, an Addison field that's way too far off in the distance. Uh, we initially tried to set up Best Glide. We did not attempt to restart the engine because at this point, I think we both knew that this was something much bigger than just a, a fuel exhaustion or something like that that would just that would allow us to restart and, and be okay. With everything else going on, we did not attempt to uh, restart. Uh, so we, we did set up a glide and kind of surveyed our area. There was a major highway off to our right. Uh, across the highway was a mall, a, a big, pretty big shopping center with a pretty full parking lot. Uh, the roads below us were littered with telephone poles and medium to large sky-rise, high-rise buildings. So it was, we didn't have a lot of options. And when I looked at him and said, we are not making the field, 
he uh, radioed Edison Tower saying, hey, we are not going to make the field and we're going to go ahead and pull our CAPS parachute. So at that point, um, it, it's almost like a, I don't, I barely remember doing it, but I reached up and pulled like I was doing a pull-up, like I was taught. And uh, that parachute deployed like it was supposed to. About what altitude were you when you pulled the chute? You know, we were pushing the limits. And I, and I don't, I, I remember looking at him thinking that the, the, the altitude is ticking away quickly. And we're going to reach that minimum 500 foot really soon here. I don't, I think if we had 500 feet, we'd be lucky. We may have been just below it when I, when I finally pulled. Yeah. So it's amazing how fast that uh, altitude, uh, you lost that altitude, isn't it? From the time you're in the turn, you lose your engine, you're looking around, you're establishing best glide. And within a pretty short time period, there you are at your minimum caps pull altitude and you make the pull. I'm curious about your, you're looking around and looking at alternate landing locations. If you'd have found one, or if you would have been able to glide back to the field, would you have attempted that instead of pulling the caps, or what was your thinking there? You know, that's an interesting question. One that I, I really don't explore too much in my brain just because it wasn't an option. You know, we, I looked at that field, and they, they, there was no way we were making it. And there was yep. no reasonable spot to uh, try a forced landing. There just wasn't a reasonable spot. So, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Had we been able to glide back to Addison, I for sure would have not pulled the caps. Had we debated between that and a plowed field or, you know, up in Wisconsin here, I have the luxury of a plowed cornfield or an unplowed cornfield. So there's lots of options here. But. Down around Dallas, Addison, North Dallas area, there's not many options. Yeah, I'm looking at the area you were in, and it's just such a crowded area. I can see there wasn't really any option. And I think Cirrus, if I'm not mistaken, Cirrus recommends you don't attempt a power-off dead stick landing in a Cirrus. They recommend you lose power, you pull the chute, right? That is correct, yeah. Yeah. So you pull the chute at uh, 500 feet or pretty, pretty close to that. What was that like? Tell us, how did the aircraft respond to that? And So at that point, you are out of control. You've no longer got control. The airplane is being guided down by some, the parachute and probably some higher power. So at that point, once the chute deploys, we kind of made, we made a, a roughly 90 degree rotation to the right. And I'm not sure if, how the aerodynamics happened with that, but you end up in a nose down attitude, almost directly, directly nose down with the ground. That's got to be pretty alarming. You're four or 500 feet somewhere in there and just having watched these videos, that nose down is aggressive, isn't it? It's almost 90 degrees nose down. It is very aggressive, and it, it's, it reminds me of my old Army days where you, when you jump out with a static line and that parachute opens, it's a good tug on you. Well, that was kind of the same thing. When that parachute opened, you could tell it opened, and it was, it was opening with some force. And, you know, there is a slider in there that kind of gently opens it, but it, it slows you down right quick and in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Were you kind of pushed forward in your straps, and was absolutely. there sort of a physical element to it there? Yeah, yep, absolutely. You were forced into that four-point harness for sure. And once you go 90 degrees or, or, you know, 
severely nosed down like that, and that and that's all by design, right? And you you knew that you you kind of expected that would happen, but it still had to be uncomfortable how low you were and seeing all that ground out of your windscreen. You're watching the trees get bigger from the top angle, and that's it is. It's an interesting sight, um, and you you just have to wait it out until those reefing lines um, are cut. So I think there's an eight second delay on those reefing lines. Um, once those are cut, that releases the plane into a normal attitude or a level attitude. And that happened right about treetop level for us. Oh, wow. Wow. You really were right pretty close to the limits of that pool then, weren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when that righted, that, that I'm sure that was a comforting feeling inside the cockpit. And then what did you land on? What did that feel like? So actually, we landed in the entryway to a parking lot. The company was called Soft Layer. So an awfully interesting name to land in their parking lot and have a gentle parachute land into Soft Layer. And did it land, Brian, on a three-point attitude just right in the parking lot? It did. Uh, the front nose gear was up on the curb. The, the, the main gear was in the actual entryway into the parking lot. Hmm. And what did that feel like? A, a two to three G impact or feel like jumping off a step ladder or what did it feel like? I would say more of a step ladder. I mean, it wasn't bad at all. It was, you know, those honeycomb seats make a huge difference too, I think. And they're, they're designed to absorb a lot of that impact as well. So, you know, it was a very uneventful landing. There may have been a little bit of a, a jolt, but it was, it was minor. So now, six minutes ago, you departed... Addison on an IFR clearance, you first lost electrical power, then you lose engine power, then it takes you a bit to process what's going on. You pull the chute, a windscreen full of ground, it settles out at treetop low and you hit the ground and you're sitting there. What went through your mind? What did you do then? I actually, um, I had to break my window out with the hammer that's inside the glove box. It's standard in every Cirrus because my door was jammed closed. So I broke the glass. Um, and meanwhile, my CSIP is opening his door on the other side. So I decided, well, there's no point in continuing to break the glass. I'll just climb out his side. The very interesting thing about this, when, when everything started, uh, my CSIP, Graham, hands me his sunglasses and says, here, hold these for a second. So in the midst of all of this, I don't remember what happened to the sunglasses until he's looking afterward. You know, we've got a, a fuel leak and a big hole in the cowling, and he's wondering where his Ray-Bans are. So he, <laughs> that was his priority at that point. He's like, where did my Ray-Bans go? Well, it turns out when we nosed down, those Ray-Bans slipped off of my lap and into essentially up into the rudder area or into the rudder pedal area. And he, and I, against my urging, he climbed back in to go find his Ray-Bans, and, and he found them. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So um, you, you exited the airplane uh, fine. There was no fire. You said there was a fuel smell, but you, it didn't sound like you thought there was any imminent danger of a fire, an explosion, or anything like that. Correct. You know, we there was no active fire. There was a fuel leaking out of, there was fuel leaking out of one of the wings. And I don't remember which one at this point, but hmm. uh, but there was no active fire at that point. Yeah. So when you exited the airplane, what'd you do then? Could you see any damage from the engine or what, what happened then? 
it was pretty evident. Once we got out of the plane, there was a big black opening in the front lower cowling on the co-pilot side. Uh, and it was still kind of a, a bit singed around the edges, but it was a clear opening into that engine compartment under that lower right cowling. Mm. And um, what would they determine would be the, the like what, what happened? What created this whole event? So when, we, when I purchased the aircraft, um, of course, it went through a, a pretty extensive pre-buy. Um, there was a few things that needed to be done to get it up to what I felt comfortable with. So there was a, a, a fair amount of work that was done during the pre-buy. Part of that was um, they had to disconnect the muffler to get access to some of the exhaust manifold area. But when they connected that muffler back together, there's usually, it's either three or four springs that hold that together that were not present when this all happened, or at least when we could look through that opening, the springs were not present and that muffler had rotated off of its collector. And then, so now you just have that direct heat coming out of the engine onto your cowling. Yeah, that direct heat was spraying right to that firewall. And that's, I mean, that's, the, what's the, that's the design of the firewall. It was designed to, to take that. However, it, you know, it, it, of course, you have your primary battery sitting right there. And eventually those uh, magneto P-leads are grounded right there as well. So that was kind of the flow of what happened is it, it really burned out the, the main battery and a lot of those connections. And that's when we started getting the shorts and the loss of avionics. Yeah, boy. And I liked your description, Brian, the firewall did its job, that that's really why it was there to prevent that kind of heat from coming into the cockpit and, you know, damaging the occupants. Exactly. What a, what a fast moving event you had six minutes from the time you took off until I think either you lost engine power, or you were under the chute or, or whatever. And it all happened so quick in an airplane that was brand new to you in brand new airspace new departure procedures. I mean, all this stuff is new to you. And on top of that, here it gets thrown these, uh, this emergency at you. So um, what, what do you take away as your lessons learned from this event? You know, the hardest part of this whole event um, was actually making that call to my wife, who was still up in Wisconsin. Hmm. <laughs> but that became the hardest call because, of course, she's going to immediately panic. Um, but really, neither one of us had a scratch. It, we, we both came out of it without a problem at all. You know, what I take away or what I've learned from it, you know, pre-buy inspections are very important. And, and any maintenance work is very important to aircraft. It's, it's belongs with any type of, it's important. Would I now uncowl every time I have any work done on my plane? You know, the first annual I had with my new Cirrus after this event, um, I had requested that they leave the cowling off uh, just so I could inspect before I took off with it again. And I did that the first year. And I thought, you know, is that absolutely necessary? People are people and, and we all make mistakes and we all errors of omission. It, it happens. We're human. And it's, it's tough not to trust people. You want to trust people. You want to trust that everyone is doing the right thing and doing the, the honest thing, um, but mistakes happen. And is it worth me telling them to leave my cowling off every single time I do an annual? I, I don't know. And, and I'm still kind of, I go back and forth on that often. At this point, I don't anymore. 
but maybe I still should. And I, I'm not sure what the right answer to that is. But I do know that the right answer to departing after any major work or an annual or anything like that is to stay in the pattern for a little bit, which, you know, hindsight, we did that the first day without any issues. So it's really a tough one. It is a tough one because, um, well, first of all, an aircraft coming out of maintenance really is one of your higher risk scenarios. Not that it's high risk, it's just higher risk as far as aircraft reliability goes for exactly the reasons you mentioned, just human error. And that's why, you know, there's this thing called infant mortality with engines. A brand new, a, a newly overhauled engine statistically has a lot more risk than an older engine that's well-maintained flying beyond TBO. So when you overhaul an engine, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into that and details that maintenance uh, technicians have to get exactly right. So there's a lot of room for error there. And you're right, Brian, that you know the safest thing to do is once you're coming out of an engine overhaul or some kind of major maintenance is to plan to fly around the patch, go overhead the airport for a while and just make sure things are operating as they should. Make sure you do a nice, good flight control check anytime your airplane is coming out of annual. You know, these kind of things can help us. In your case, it doesn't seem like it would have because you had already flown once before this incident happened. So that would have been, in essence, your kind of shakeout flight to make sure that everything was operating okay, which it did. Exactly. And, and you know, being new to the airplane, I had the pre-flight checklist by, verb. I mean, it was Line for line, I went through every single one because this is brand new to me, and I want to make sure initially that I, I, you know, and not just initially, but always checking all these things that need to be checked on a on a pre-flight. So I did the the checklist top to bottom both flights, and, and this is just something you won't you won't catch in a, in a pre-flight. Um, had the cowling been off, the upper cowling, I still wouldn't have caught it. If the upper and lower cowling were off. Would I have caught the, the three springs that were missing? It's really tough to say. It does come down to you do have to trust, you know, maintenance technicians, A&Ps. They're, they're certified for a reason. Uh, they're highly skilled people. They do make mistakes. So where we can, it's good to back them up with a good pre-flight. But there are some things that you really just can't pre-flight and that you have to trust were done properly. And, um, and then in the cases where they weren't, then react accordingly, which you guys did. Absolutely. So I also think that one of the lessons learned here is the value of that cap shoot. When I look at where your incident happened, there was just no place to go. And thankfully, you had that parachute, or else this could have been an entirely different outcome to this story. I truly, in my heart, believe that had that not been the case, had I not had a parachute, I would not be able to be here to talk to you today. There just weren't, there weren't any options. And, and I felt so strongly about it that I actually contacted the salvage yard that took the Cirrus in and had them, once the investigation was complete, um, they mailed me back the parachute and it's hanging in my hangar right now. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool stuff there. And, you know, another lesson learned to talk about, Brian, is talk to us about the altitude that you pulled the chute, how long it took to just recognize, I really am going to have to pull this chute here. Was that part of the hesitancy? Because it seems like 
based on your description, you really pulled it at the at the minimum time you can pull that chute. We did, and you know the Cirrus is a, a fast plane, but that wing is not like a, a Super Cub wing. I mean, it's it's not going to float for very long. Yeah, it's not designed for glide. Absolutely not. So you know, for a moment there, I was wishing I was in back in my Cardinal, which you know the glide ratio is really nice. But again, that didn't have a parachute. So the time. From the turn, the time of the engine failure to the time of the pull, time was compressed at that point. And I don't, I don't really know if we, we had a pretty rough gauge as to our altitude at the time. And we, both of us kept kind of glancing at it and we both knew why we were glancing at it as we're trying to, to reach our legs as far as we can to get to Addison. But once it became clearly obvious it was. It had to be a quick decision at that point because when it was clearly obvious, we were we were passing through six hundred feet AGL. So, and I looked at him. You know, CSIPs are awesome. They're they're so well trained and they know these aircraft so well. But they there's only a very very small percentage. I'd say I don't even know what the percentage of of CSIPs that have actually had to pull the parachute. Right. So when that time actually came, you know, he teaches this all the time. But he's never had to do it. So even for him, it was like, really, this is actually going to happen. Yeah, that's new territory for him, too, right? That to make that final decision to actually pull it in the moment. And thankfully, it is rare enough to where that would be the case with most CSIPs. So maybe something for the CSIP instructors to think about, um, you know, that response time and that reality check, so to speak, when it comes to the fact that you're really going to have to pull this handle. And I, and I think there was a flash in both of our minds that I, I kind of looked to him initially to say, you're the CSIP, what are we supposed to be doing here? And then it quickly dawned on me that I'm the pilot in command and it's my aircraft, so I have to make a decision. And, and I think, you know, he looked at me kind of saying the same thing. It's like, well, it's your call because there was no other options and, and he knew it. And Brian, you know, I, f- I flew with ejection seats in the military and we would always brief a minimum altitude at which, if you're uncontrolled, eject by this altitude. I want to say it was 10,000 AGL. If you're in a controlled flight, eject no lower than, I can't, I can't honestly remember what it was. I want to say it was uh, 5,000 AGL. It may have been as low as 2,000 AGL. And we always knew what that number was on our altimeter so that we didn't have to do mental math on, well, it's 2,000 AGL, but I'm at 1,000 MSL, so, you know, whatever. So I wonder if that might be something, either was that part of your brief, or would it be something good to incorporate that essentially says, if, we're, if we've lost power or we're under control, we'll go no lower than 2,500 on the altimeter, and we're pulling the chute. And that is part of the pre-flight brief uh, that you give yourself and your passengers is the caps pull altitudes. So it's a pretty quick discussion, but if you lose lose power below 500, land straight ahead. You know, 500, pull immediately. Above, you know, 800, you have a few seconds to figure this out or pull immediately. And then if you're, you know, have a 1,000 feet AGL, then you have some time to, to talk about it and make a decision, but you got to make a decision quick. So there is that pre-flight brief um, of those altitudes. And that's part of your standard departure is as soon as you're 500 AGL, I touch it. I touch the cover and say caps active or caps available. So in my mind, in my passenger's mind, they know that that is an option at this point going forward. Got it. And finally, when you're higher than your minimum pull 
and I suspect it's like ejection seats where the minimum is the minimum. You want to pull it above that just to, in, you know, increase your chances of success. But let's say that, like you, you were at 2,000 feet, so you got a little bit of time. Is there any ability to assess the glide profile under parachute? In other words, does it come straight down? So would you be able to vector the airplane over to an open field to pull the chute? Or is there any, any kind of that capability? And, and there is none of that capability. Once you've pulled the chute, it's, it's under canopy, and it's going to come down fairly straight with a little bit of a wind drift, I'm sure. So I think the objective at that point is if you know you're going to have to pull, and I can say this now because I've been there, but if you know you're going to have to pull, try and get to somewhere where you're going to keep everyone around you safe as well because that's the last thing we want to do is, is put a bad stamp on general aviation by coming into somebody's backyard or in the, into their home after we've pulled. And, and it happens. I mean, there's some opportunities where there's just not an option, but if you have the option, get out somewhere where it's nice and open. So it seems like that is part of the decision tree is if you have the altitude to try to find an open field or an open space where you can pull the caps then and, you know, hopefully the plane comes down in a place that's, that's not so crowded. Absolutely. Well, what an interesting uh, event for your, the first couple flights in a brand new airplane, but the story ends well. We're thankful that it did and you pulled the chute and everybody's fine. Nobody hurt on the ground. Nobody hurt in the airplane. And you're back flying another Cirrus. I am back flying another Cirrus, exactly the same model, same make, just a different serial number. Yeah. Great. Brian, anything else to share with us on lessons learned for your story? I mean, it's just, I am thoroughly impressed with Cirrus's offering up of these training events for new Cirrus pilots or any pilot that's transitioning to a Cirrus, used or new. So I, I'm very impressed with that. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm not getting paid for, by them. I just think it's a, it's a great, great thing to have. And, and, and I hope, you know, other aircraft companies decide that that's probably not a bad idea to offer this up to help the overall rates go down. Well, another successful save for airframe parachutes, in this case, the Cirrus with their CAP system. And I know Brian Lintzmeyer and his instructor are certainly thankful to have that capability. I think all total for uh, BRS systems on airplanes, there's more than 450 lives saved from these parachutes. And so a tremendous advantage for general aviation safety. Thankfully, engine failures are rare, but it's nice to have that capability when they happen. And another plug for the Cirrus Embark program it's such an investment that Cirrus made in providing training for used aircraft owners. So when they buy used aircraft, they can go through this Cirrus Embark program. And it's just easy to imagine that the outcome could have been very different if not for that training program and being in the middle of that training program when this event happened. And then once again, we learned that the airplanes coming out of extended maintenance carry more risk in terms of equipment failures or failures of some type. So just a reminder to all of us, when an airplane is out of annual or out of maintenance to take extra time in your pre-flight and maybe for that first flight, do something that remains near the airfield until you can really flush out all the systems and make sure it's operating properly. So a great end to that story. And we're thankful that Brian shared his story with us. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, 
I'm the host, Richard McSpadden. Thanks for joining us. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.